Are you a Christian who finds yourself struggling with the same sin over and over again? Do you feel like your life doesn't seem to reflect the resurrection you know to be true? Have you tried dozens of books and techniques only to find yourself discouraged and ready to give up? Well, we've got good news for you. Questions like these inspired our journey into the rich biblical truths we call New Heart Theology. And we believe if you join us in this journey, we'll learn together, we'll wrestle together, and we'll strive together unto godliness. Welcome to the New Heart Theology Podcast, where we believe that when God gives you a new heart, he makes your soul completely new, and that part of you sins no longer. Our show talks about this glorious truth and how it affects our lives and our battle with sin. I'm Kevin Lehman, and I'm a pastor and a biblical counselor in Wilmington, North Carolina. And I'm Grant Forrester, and I'm a pastor and an apologist in Wilmington, North Carolina. Today on the show, we begin what we hope will be a long series of doing expositional discussions on key New Heart Theology passages. This doesn't mean we won't occasionally work in other types of episodes, but this expositional content seems to be where the demand is right now. Right. And I would agree with what the audience wants here. Like I would agree with with the demand there. The real beauty of NHT is when you see exactly how well-grounded in Scripture it is. And we don't have to do any hermeneutical backflips to get there. We want to show you how NHT fits into a simple, plain reading of the Bible. To kick things off, we're looking at Kevin's favorite passage, Jeremiah 17, 9, and asking the question, can a believer's heart truly be wicked and sick? Yeah, and, and you kid, but after what we've done and prep for this show, I'm a huge fan of Jeremiah 17.9 and everything that God builds around it through his prophet Jeremiah. Admittedly, we are tackling one of our largest foes right off the bat. Oh, yeah. But I think this will be good. One of our friends, Gianni, made the comment that it's almost kind of like the guy who goes into prison and picks out the the, the most dangerous dude. Yeah, and it's like, (laughs) I'm going to make an example of you right out of the gate. And that's kind of what we're doing, tackling Jeremiah 17.9. And and just as a very quick note, too, Grant has been uh, very busy this week teaching back to back to back to back to back. Teaching New Heart Theology. Yes, teaching New Heart Theology. And we would love to hear about that at some point. Yeah. But I ended up doing most of the prep work this week. And so I'm going to do most of the talking and Grant's going to chime in here or there so that it's not just a blatant monologue. But Grant, if you're ready, let's do this. All right, man. Yeah. We hope you enjoy the show. Jeremiah began his ministry under the reign of King Josiah. We don't know much about his pre-prophet days other than he was born in a small town just northeast of Jerusalem, and he was the son of a priest named Hilkah. We don't know that Jeremiah was ever a priest like his father. Some people believe that he was, but either way, he certainly would have understood the law and he would have understood holiness. We know he was young when he was called into ministry and he was told not to marry. He also wasn't allowed to attend many social functions, so he probably would have been quite a unique guy. (laughs) Most of the evidence points to him being about 22 years of age when he started preaching, and he preached during the reigns of Josiah, Jehoaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, 
and Zedekiah. So that that's that's five kings. So he preached yeah. he preached through the lifetime of five kings. That sounds that sounds like a really, <laughs> really old man. So do we do we know how many years he, he preached? Well, that's because you assume that kings of Israel lasted a really long <laughs> time go, in that go. time. Yeah, there were <laughs> there were a couple of guys in here. I think it was Jehoiachin actually uh, only ended up sitting on the front throne for like three months. Oh, geez. You know, and there was another one that was only a couple of years. And so it wasn't as long as it yeah. sounded. But yeah. Josiah did have a, a long reign uh, in the beginning. And we'll talk about him here in just a second. But to understand the historical setting of Jeremiah's ministry, we need to understand a few key events that occurred during this time. First, during Jeremiah's ministry, the world saw the Assyrian Empire fall into total collapse as Babylon came onto the scene. Mm -hmm. Second, different parts of Israel at different times went back and forth into captivity to Assyria and then ultimately to Babylon as they grew in power. Third, the Battle of Megiddo Pass. That sounds awesome. Between Judah and Egypt, where King Josiah was killed in combat, not so awesome for Israel because many mark this as the beginning of the end for historical Israel. And then fourth, the collapse of Jerusalem finally in 587-ish BC. Some people say it's in the 570s, but right around that time, marking officially the Mm -hmm. end of the Judean Empire. Mm. Now, the book of Jeremiah is a collection of sermons and writings by the prophet Jeremiah, all recorded in a single edition. And the guy compiling all these stories, Baruch, throws in a few personal stories about Jeremiah as well. Jeremiah's primary purpose was to warn Judah, the southern sub-nation of Israel, that their idolatry and covenant-breaking practices would eventually lead to judgment by a nation from the north. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah. Robert Kizom says, The theology of the book of Jeremiah may be summarized as follows. God's judgment would fall on Judah because she had broken his covenant. The people worshipped other gods, and the religious and civil leaders were hopelessly corrupt. Sword, plague, and famine Mm. would devastate the land, and many would be carried into exile. However, God would also judge the arrogant nations and eventually restore his people to their land. He would establish a new covenant with the reunited northern and southern kingdoms and replace the ineffective kings and priests of Jeremiah's day with an ideal Davidic ruler or a Messiah Mm. and a purified priesthood. Yeah, yeah. And Jeremiah... Uh, is is referred to often as the the weeping prophet. When God called Jeremiah and gave him the message that he was to preach, he was also told by God that no one would listen to him. Hmm. And in chapter seven, in other words, go out and call them to repentance and warn them that if they don't repent, they will be destroyed. And also, they're not going to listen to you. And listen, they did not. Yeah, that's exactly right. Now, before we dive into Jeremiah 17, 9, there's one thing I need you guys and gals to understand more than anything, and that is the absolute depth and depravity of Israel's sin during this time. Jeremiah warns them in chapter 4, verse 4, to circumcise yourselves to the Lord, remove the foreskin of your hearts, which they cannot do by themselves, by the way. O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Suffice it to say, Judah did not heed this warning, and the wrath of God did in fact burn against them. Charles Feinberg writes of the extent of their sin. 
The gods of the nation are non-entities. God knows the malady of the human heart, yet he loves his people deeply, longing to bless those who trust him. Idolatrous worship and heartless, impotent service are like an abomination to him. Mm. No greater insult can be offered God than to represent him under the form of dead idols. Let me read that line from him one more time. No greater insult can be offered God than to represent him under the form of dead idols. Mm. He goes on to say, idolatry was the special sin Jeremiah tirelessly preached against. Three kinds of falsehood stirred him. One, false security that refused all calls for repentance. Two, false prophets who lulled the people into dangerous complacency. And three, the false worship of idols. Worship was tendered to Baal, Moloch, and the queen of heaven, Ishtar. Images of these deities were even placed in the temple. Immorality always accompanied idolatry. In Jeremiah's time, moral corruption was widespread and social injustices abounded. Priests and prophets were as culpable as the rest of Judah, yet the nation carried out its religious rites. But God was not to be placated with these merely external services. Jeremiah preached that judgment was inescapable. God had already used drought, famine, and foreign invaders. He would yet bring the culminating visitation through Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, the idea, the idea that from the high priests down to the normal layperson, that everybody was, was everybody. using, I, like that's, that's wild to me, and that all of these really clear signs of God's displeasure not moving them at all really shows the depravity at the time. I mean, it yeah. really shows that the visitation, you're saying the visitation from Nebuchadnezzar is, is necessary. Like that's, even, even to the point of him pulling his presence yeah. out of the temple, Oh man, which is why the idols, I mean, you may ask why were idols in the temple? Right, like right, if, right. if a priest had a dot on his cloak and he died if he yeah. went into the temple. That's because yeah. he was going into the presence of God. Right. These idols were able to exist in the temple because God's presence was being pulled <sighs> from the nation. That's, so yeah. it's interesting. That's really scary stuff, man. Yeah. So Judah had turned to idols, and we're not talking about the so-called idolizing of control or of marriage. This was actual worship of physical idols who yeah. carried the names of fallen gods who would oppose Yahweh. Like the real unfictional beings that we just mentioned, Baal, Moloch, and the queen of heaven, Ishtar. Yes. Actual real idols. They were not idolizing their marriage, like I said. Or their Bentley. Yes. No, no, no. These were were actual gods that were being worshipped. Yeah. And so listen to these verses in Jeremiah 10, verse 5. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. Verse 8, they are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Verse 10, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. And so that's the that's the downfall that will eventually come from the or eventually come to these false gods. Yeah. And then in verse 25, Pour out your wrath on the nations that know you not Mm. and on the peoples that call not on your name, for they have devoured Jacob. They have devoured him and consumed him and have laid waste 
his habitation. Mm. Do you hear the physical nature of the idols? They are wooden. They have to be carried and they will perish from the earth. Do you hear the way Jeremiah talks about Judah, that they have devoured Jacob and they have laid waste his habitation? And then we'll skip over to Jeremiah 44, 2, 3, just to emphasize our point. And this is where God speaks of Judah after the judgment has been delivered. And so listen to what he says about them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, you have seen all the disaster that I brought upon Jerusalem and upon all the cities of Judah. Behold, this day they are a desolation and no one dwells in them because of the evil that they committed provoking me to anger in that they were to make offerings and serve other gods that they knew not, neither they nor you nor your fathers. So it should not surprise us when we arrive to Jeremiah chapter 17, and it begins like this. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With a point of diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart. Mm. Listen to that again, because this is important. With a point of diamond, the sin of Judah is engraved on the tablet of their heart. This described the present state of Judah's heart. The idea that their sin had been written on their hearts with a pen of iron and engraved with the point of a diamond speaks to the permanence of the sin. Their sin was so immense that God said it had been permanently bonded to their souls. Heart is used four times in chapter 17. Verse 1, verse 5, verse 9, which is the point of this whole episode, and then verse 10. All are important, but as I said, verse 9 is where we really want to focus for today. And this is where Jeremiah writes, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's the ESV translation. I see this verse over and over and over again posted as if it applies to the New Testament, New Covenant believer Mm. who has a heart regenerated by God. And so I want to address that. God has just declared in verse 1 that Judah's sin has been engraved on their hearts. And this is, this is really, really interesting language. And I'm, yes. I'm, I'm sure you're going to get to that. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Keep that in mind. This is very interesting language, that the sin has been engraved on their hearts. Yeah, yeah. And might I even say significant language. Interesting yeah. and significant yeah. language. And then here in verse 9, he continues to talk about their hearts. He says their hearts are deceitful and desperately sick. Well, first, you would certainly expect a heart that is engraved by a diamond with sin to be deceitful. (laughs) Yeah. The heart, when referencing the immaterial part of a person, represents our intellectual and rational capacity. It is the center of our logic. This passage means that if your heart is in this condition, you can't trust what you believe is rational because your heart will deceive you. I talk to people all the time who can't understand how someone could rationally argue for abortion and believe so strongly that they are right. Well, this passage answers that question. It's because their logical and rational faculties are broken. 
They're being deceived by their own intellect, so they think they're right. He also says their hearts are desperately sick, according to the ESV translation, desperately sick. This is really interesting because the word doesn't just mean sick. It literally means incurable. Yeah, yeah. It means incurable. The same word is translated this way in Jeremiah 15, 18 and in Jeremiah 30, 12. It's the same Hebrew word. And in those two passages, even in the ESV, it is translated incurable. But even here at Jeremiah 17, 9, the CSB and the NIV capture this translation of the word as well. The CSB says the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? Similarly, the NIV renders it, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Wow. Who can understand it? When you understand that what this passage is actually pointing to is that not only is the heart sick, it is beyond cure. Right, right. It adds a little more umph to it. And I'm hoping it's starting to make you consider whether or not you really want to identify with this heart as a believer. Mm. If I, as a believer, have a heart that is incurable, I'm in big trouble. Yeah. Unless, of course, someone offered a cure, but then that would be an entirely different heart right. from the one mentioned here, wouldn't it? <laughs> hmm. Does anyone offer a cure? Let's see. I wonder. He closes the passage with a rhetorical question. Who can understand this incurable and deceitful heart? And he immediately answers the question in verse 10. It's not that no one knows the heart. God knows the heart of man and can see those who have deceitful and incurable hearts. Amen. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God reveals the heart of man. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And that verse, by the way, is in the context of allowing the word to expose whether or not you are in Christ, whether or not you are a true believer. And so if the story ended here, we would be in an utterly hopeless situation. We have deceitful hearts that are so crafty in their deceit that we often aren't rational even when we think yeah, we are. Yeah, and, and oftentimes we think that we, are, that we are being rational, but what we're really doing is attempting to justify our own emotions. Exactly, exactly. And if that weren't despairing enough, the disease of sin causing this is incurable. There's no remedy under the sun. We are left without a shred of promise. And then the two most grace-filled words in all of Scripture pop up, right? But God. Amen, man. You're probably familiar with the Ephesians 2 passage, but God being rich in mercy. But Jeremiah has its own unspoken but God passage as well. And I say unspoken just because it doesn't actually say the two words but God, but the concept is there. The idea is there. We yeah. have these deceitful, wicked incurable hearts, but God, while we were born into a wicked condition of the soul with the law of sin engraved on our hearts with a diamond point, yeah. while we sat with our incurable disease, we existed without hope. 
This is Jeremiah 17.9. This is what Jeremiah 17.9 is talking about, that we existed without hope. But God, but God says just a few chapters later in chapter 31, verse 33, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. Oh, man. And I will be their God and they shall be my people and I will remember their sin no more. Do you see what happened here, Grant? Mm. God has set up a beautiful contrast in the book of Jeremiah. 17.1 says a permanent law of sin has been written on our hearts. It has caused us to deceive even ourselves, and it is a fatal wound. It is incurable. But God says, I'll tell you what I'll do. Where sin was once written, where trying to scratch it off would be of no avail, Mm. where you're hopelessly without a remedy, I'll take your heart and I'll write something new on it. Amen, man. I'll overwrite the sin with righteousness and obedience. And not only that, but I'll forget everything that diamond engraved sinful heart ever did. Beloved, this is the greatest news you'll ever find. God could not be more clear that the heart of Jeremiah 17, 9 is no longer the heart of those he's changed. In fact, it's so far from the present reality of those in Christ, so far at the other end of the contrast, that I would argue that it's borderline disrespectful to try and put believers back in that state. Jeremiah talks about two very different hearts. Why in the world would we want to choose the wicked sin infused one to represent our in Christ state when a heart so much better is offered and spoken of in Jeremiah 31? Why would we choose the heart of Jeremiah 17, 9 when he offers us the heart of Jeremiah 31? Yeah. Can you see how God has given us this wonderful, clean, purified, made alive, new heart? And all of those words are biblical, by the way. And yet we want the old one to describe who we are? Believer, stop doing that. Live with the hope in who God has now made you to be. And now when you sin, it's not because your heart is deceitful or sick, or incurable, it is because you still live in a body under the effects of sin. Yeah. But because Christ offered the cure, you have everything you need to put that body into submission and embody the truth of Scripture. That's confidence. Amen, man. That's transformation. And that's the gospel. Grant, it saddens me genuinely saddens me every time I hear a Christian speak of themselves like God has done nothing to their souls or like God has not really permanently seated himself on the throne of their heart. Yeah. Do you have anything you would like to add before we wind down? For sure. Uh, I grew up um, in a Christianity that was a lot of easy believism. And what I mean is, you know, pray this prayer, say these words, poof. Um, you're now a believer. And there really wasn't any felt change. A lot of the times it was emotional. And what that leads to is this sort of rededication Christian culture. And I may be opening a can of worms, but 
this, this whole passage here, Jeremiah 17, Jeremiah 17, 9, this is so important to hear because it wipes away the idea of rededicating your heart to God. Yeah. Right. You can't rededicate an incurable heart. Right. Okay, I grew up in that kind of theology, but you can't, you can't rededicate a dead heart. Okay. And you can't rededicate the perfected one that God gives you. Neither one of those can be rededicated. <laughs> yeah. One's dead and one is definitely in, in <laughs> no need. One's dead and one is done. That's, that's, right. <laughs> so, that's exactly right. And so God, God does all of the work. There is no rededicating necessary. We just, we just trust him. Yeah. And that's really like, I mean, we, we, maybe we put that, you know, in a, in an episode at some point where we talk about the yeah, rededicating yeah. or asking Jesus into your heart. There's a really good book out there. I haven't personally read it, but my daughter has, and I, I trust her judgment on those things. And, right. um, it's called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. Oh, that wow. addresses all of that. Yeah, that's a, it, that's, a, that's a fair thing. And I mean, yeah, we've got Jeremiah 17, 9 here. We've got Jeremiah 31. Folks, listen, God talks about two hearts yeah. in Jeremiah. And yeah. I don't understand why as Christians... We want to choose the one yeah. that describes who we were yeah. rather than choosing the one. If you were to do a search on Twitter, <laughs> Jeremiah 17, 9, you're going to get hundreds of references to that verse a day. You sound like you've done this. I have done this. <laughs> and all of them almost, almost all of them yeah. are using it in reference to the current state of the believer. Mm. And so I've been having a little bit of fun lately, you know, reaching out <laughs> to some of these people and, and talking to them and asking, you know, do you realize that yeah. Jeremiah talks about a, another heart. Yeah. Like, yes, Jeremiah 17, 9 is true. It is an accurate description of a lost person, of, a, of an unbeliever who does not know God, yeah. who has not been cured. Yeah. But we have this other heart over here in Jeremiah 31. Like, why aren't you talking about that? <laughs> why don't, when you look at humanity, why don't you go, here's Jeremiah 17, 9, and yes, this describes lost humanity. Yeah. But here's Jeremiah 31, yeah. and this describes who we are. Yeah, I mean, I mean and to, to borrow to borrow from the New Testament, how are they to believe if they don't hear? Yes, right. And so that's that's why we're that's why we're that's why we're out here. We want we want this theology to be. I'm going to say corrected. I know that can be pointed. We want this theology to be corrected. We want this theology to be mm-hmm. uh, our, this new heart theology. We want that out there because it's it's freeing. Your heart yeah. will never believer for the believer. Your heart will never be sick again. That's right. That's right. And and the new in new heart theology, because we were having this discussion earlier this week too, yeah. we are talking about the new heart. This is not new heart theology. This is right, right, new right. heart theology. This right, is right. theology about the new heart, which we're going to talk about and discuss next week together. Absolutely. Uh, Ezekiel 36, 25-ish and following where, yeah, where yeah. we see the promise of the new heart. So that'll be what's coming next week. All right. I think that will do it for this episode. Yeah. I, I really hope this has been good, folks. And listen, if it's been good, please share this with people. There are there are millions of Christians walking around right now yeah. who believe that they have a wicked, incurable heart. I mean, they're yeah. applying Jeremiah. I've, I even looked up, there are people who have tattooed this verse on their bodies. Oh, man. And it's like, that's not you. Yeah, that's not yeah. you. You don't have to. So anyway, if you... If you know a friend who could love to hear the benefit of, hey, that's not you anymore. Yeah, You're Jeremiah yeah. 31. Please share it with a friend. Uh, but we hope you hang around. We got just a few notes on our on our outro, just a few show notes and information about the show that we hope you'll stick around and listen to. Uh, but this has been good. Thank you to everyone for listening to the show. 
And we hope that this has been a benefit to your walk with Jesus. If you've been encouraged by our show, you can show your support in several different ways. And we'd love for you to pick one today. You could give us an honest five-star review. You could subscribe to our show. You could follow our Instagram channel at New Heart Theology, if you haven't already. And we always love it when you tell a friend about us. If you have questions or feedback or need to talk to someone about counseling, please feel free to DM me on Twitter or Instagram. Oh, yeah. My handle on both is at Kevin Lehman. Or feel free to use the Instagram channel that we just mentioned. Yep. All right. So we'll see you soon. Thanks for listening and God bless. Thank you.